Emma Gould is a BANT, an IFM qualified functional practitioner focused on addressing the root causes of psoriasis. Her journey actually started during her A-levels when she had her own breakout, but that disappeared quite quickly. Then, after having her first child in her 30s, psoriasis came back in a slightly more serious manner. Since then, she's been on her own journey to understand the disease, get her own symptoms into some sort of remission, and now she's helping others do the same. To quote Emma, the skin is a reflection of what's going on the inside of our bodies. Emma, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I thought actually just a great place to start would be for people that are listening to this that maybe haven't experienced it themselves to kind of help people understand what what psoriasis, I think people understand it's a, it's a skin-related thing, but what is psoriasis? It's probably a good place to start. Mm. So psoriasis is really common, actually. About 3 to 5% of the world population suffer with it. And it's a condition, it's an autoimmune condition where the skin layer, the top layer of the skin grows too quickly. So normally the skin would turn over in around 30 days, but with psoriasis it turns over in about 3 to 5 days. So you end up getting plaques on the skin and overgrowth, a thickening of the skin where it's just growing too fast. So when you say plaques, like what, how, what does that sort of look like? What are the typical sort of things that you would see if you notice somebody mm. with psoriasis? So it's a thickening really of the skin. It's, it's too many layers on the skin at once. It can quite often be red and inflamed. People often feel itchy with it. Um, this, the two main types are plaque. So where the psoriasis, the, um, there's different plaques on the skin, so different spots Quite often people find that these grow then and where you might have different plaques, commonly they're on the elbows or on the knees. That's the most common place to get plaque psoriasis. But often these plaques start to grow and merge into each other and people can end up with quite big plaques taking over quite a large area of the skin. Um, and the other main type is guttate psoriasis, which is more kind of little teardrops. So more little dots, which can be all over the body. Um, but generally it's the both... They're both down to the same reason, which is this overgrowth, the fast turnover of skin. We've spoken to a lot of people on this podcast about all sorts of kind of autoimmune conditions, kind of gut health conditions and things like this. And there's also there's always a, a kind of thing about if somebody has a, a broken leg, it's very visible, it's very easy to be empathetic. But with things like irritable bowel disease or IBS or things like that, it's quite a silent condition. And mm. people that have never experienced it themselves perhaps aren't very empathetic to and in, what sort of impact it has on people's lives. Mm. I think the really sad thing about psoriasis for so many people is not just the, the physical symptoms, which we'll get into, but it can just be so devastating from a, from a, a confidence perspective, mm. just because of, for some people, aesthetically, yeah. it can have, because it can appear not just obviously on the elbows, for people mm. that just don't want to wear a t-shirt, but for some yeah. people they can get it around their sort of neck and their scalp, even yeah. some people on their face, they don't want to wear shorts, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 it can, it's a, it's a really sad outcome for a lot of people. It has such an impact on their lives. There's a massive psychological component, which I think isn't always picked up by people, but it's particularly some people get it on the face. And if it's on your face, every time you look in the mirror, it's there. There's no escaping it. Um, and it's, you just feel like it's, it's there all the time that people are staring at you. There's, um, if you have it in the scalp particularly, you can have almost like dandruff, but bigger plaques. So you can have white... Um, skin literally dropping off your scalp so it's hard um, 
to find clothes to wear. So if people wear dark black clothing, obviously it shows up the white scales more than others. Um, and obviously, yeah, coming into the summer as well, people don't want to reveal sometimes their skin. Although the sunlight can help, it's, um, it just makes you think twice about what clothes you're going to wear. Because people do look and stare, it's almost second nature. But it's this whole psychological component as well, not wanting to go swimming um, in swimming pools because people stare and you worry that people think that it's contagious yeah. and, and you feel kind of that you're yeah, infecting them somehow. Um, scratching, so it's so itchy, particularly at night. So scratching at night and waking up with blood on the bed sheets, um, almost inadvertently just doing it in your sleep. Mm. So all these other components, along with the kind of the physical, so it's often linked with brain fog, fatigue, and other symptoms as well. So it's definitely not just a skin condition. Now, the quote that we gave at the beginning of the podcast is actually psoriasis itself, although it is presented as a kind of skin condition, what we're going to talk about a lot today is the fact that actually it could well, the root cause of psoriasis could have a much deeper connection to the overall kind of health, certainly connected to the gut in, in some ways. But but just before we sort of get on, for, for people that are listening to this episode that aren't suffering with psoriasis, or maybe you don't know anyone suffering from psoriasis, I'm interested to know, we're obviously talking about an autoimmune condition here. So I'm assuming there's probably going to be some things in this episode connected to kind of autoimmune conditions around diet that might be useful for people that aren't necessarily suffering from psoriasis. Yes, I think the, we'll probably get into the leaky gut theory, intestinal permeability, um, which is linked with all autoimmune conditions. So not just psoriasis, but it's it's about what's going on inside in the guts and it's those things translocating into the bloodstream, which shouldn't always belong there, which kind of fires up that immune system yes. and causes autoimmunity. I think probably a good place to start is um, uh, how we currently treat psoriasis. You were saying there about anything up to about 3% of the world's population are actually suffering of, with some kind of degree of psoriasis. Mm. Um, when we think about uh, the, the traditional... Um, so, so when clients arrive to you, Emma, what generally have you seen clients go through to kind of get to the stage that, you know, what is a traditional treatment sort of strategy mm. look like? So first port of call is usually steroid creams down the conventional medicine route. Um, and it works for some people, which is great. Um, you should only ever be on them short term. So I don't, I'm not sure that's always made clear, but it's, it's never, shouldn't ever be a long term solution. It's just only a short term um, use and, and some people clear up on it which is amazing um, if your skin doesn't clear up or if it clears up and comes back uh, light therapy might then be the next step so um, with the NHS you can have um, light therapy so going to uh, the equivalent of a sunbed and but for very kind of measured controlled amounts of time just to reduce that psoriasis down which again works for quite a large amount of people actually um, but people often find that it comes back after that. So it might work for short term, but it, it, it can come back after. So when we're talking about, just talking about the light therapy to start with, um, the lighter therapy, by the sounds of it, um, doesn't necessarily have lots of side effects associated with it because it's very measured, the amount of mm -hmm. light that you're getting. But perhaps it's not actually, although it gets some resolution of the symptoms, it's not getting to the root of the issue. So mm. often people would need to go back and have, have more done. 
Yes, and it's um, it should always be kind of under medical supervision because it's very controlled. You don't want to have too much um, kind of exposure to those sunbeds uh, due to skin cancer risks, for example. So it's it's very measured, and I think it's only a maximum of twelve weeks at a time. Although you can then repeat it maybe the next year if necessary. And and then for the for the for the steroid creams. Um, obviously you're saying that you shouldn't be on them for a long term. I'm assuming that when people try to wean off the steroid creams, for some people there's a risk of the symptoms coming mm. back again. Yeah. And over time, is there, uh, like a lot of drugs, do you need to keep increasing the amount, mm-hmm. the percentages of steroids that you're using? Yeah. What is the downside of... Uh, a lot of people think of steroids and they'll just think of, you know big bodybuilders but but Mm. what is that steroid cream doing and and what are the Mm. downsides of using the steroids Mm. um so from my own personal experience it got to the point the steroid creams worked at first with me when it was just a couple of patches on my knees but when I had those bigger plaques kind of all over the top of my thigh I was just using so much steroid cream just it felt like I was using more and more and not really getting the same effect from it I think your body just becomes um, kind of sensitised, desensitised to it. Um, And there's concerns long term, I suppose, from a naturopathic point of view, um, it can affect your adrenal function. So it can start to kind of interfere with cortisol and um, your stress response generally. Um, Yeah, some nutrient depletion as well. So it shouldn't really be a long term solution. Okay, so and is there any other sort of traditional approaches to kind of treating psoriasis or are those the two main things that we have at the mm. moment? And then um, the kind of the more serious medications then is uh, immunosuppressants and biologics, so um, suppressing your immune system so that you're not having that same activated immune system. And that's often the point where people maybe start to look a little bit more naturally because the side effects from some of those can be um, quite big never I'd never judge someone it's you know it's a personal decision but sometimes that's when people might start to look elsewhere to see what's going on in the inside and so when we start thinking then about um uh, a kind of more uh, natural approach to psoriasis I'm assuming that some of the challenges around this is is that um the benefits of the slightly more traditional approach is that perhaps you don't need to make too many lifestyle mm changes yeah um is it fair to say that for those kind of listening that are experiencing psoriasis taking a more functional approach to it is slightly more effort oh definitely yeah yeah it's not the easy route it's (laughs) um taking i think it's empowering because it's taking back responsibility for your own health so you're in charge now of your body whereas i think it's quite easy if you're going down the conventional route you almost hand over your power to the medications, to the creams, to the drugs, um, and go about your your life without thinking too much about that. Um, but also the functional medicine route is about feeling better on the inside as well. So it's not just about the skin. It's about completely balancing the, the body as a whole and just living life optimally to the best way that we can and making the most. We only get one life, so just making the most out of it. I think maybe that's part of the wider journey with psoriasis as well. I always think maybe it's there to point us in a different direction for life. So it um, can be a kind of a prompt to, to um, improve your life, to, to live more optimally. So what you're saying is, is that actually 
you, the state of your health currently uh, may well be better than if you'd never had psoriasis mm. in the first place. Exactly. I think that was the case for me, to be honest. Like I lived quite a crazy 20s, as lots of people did, and then had my child's kind of age, about 32. But also the psoriasis then almost forced me into a healthier lifestyle. And that's the reason I retrained as a nutritionist uh, because of that. So I think you can look at the positives of it. It's hard when you're going through a ma- major flare because it's agonising. It takes over all of your life. But if you can get to the point where you can think of it as a positive, and many people do, and it's almost, even for myself now, it's a warning system. It's a warning sign. So if I go off track too much, um, have kind of some bad habits have started to slip back in, maybe drinking too much alcohol or just not having, not living the way that I know that I feel best, I will still get some psoriasis spots, but it's a, yeah. almost like just a little nudge um, to get back into the way and not as not as a way of depriving myself and punishing myself, but wanting to do that so that I feel good again on the inside and just a reminder to do that. So I think that's actually quite a nice place to sort of get into really is actually starting at kind of the end point, because if somebody's listening to this right now and they're, you know, they're, they're having, they're in a, a significant episode of psoriasis, they're in a lot of discomfort. It's, it's, that's almost quite an easy point to say, right, I'm going to do something about it. I imagine mm. you see a lot of clients that come to you that have come to you almost at a crisis exactly. point mm. with it, a slight kind of desperation. Yeah. I think to start with, um, this isn't about cures, I'm assuming. Mm. Like when you have psoriasis, there isn't uh, a way just to say, right, I'm going to do a few things and then it's kind of going to be eliminated. I'm assuming the functional approach is actually how do you get your body in a place where you're going to keep the symptoms in remission? Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I always think it's about controlling it and controlling it to the point of clear skin, which I've seen myself and many clients have seen. But I personally always feel like it's there in the background um, but it can be controlled so yeah with most autoimmunity it's the same case it's about controlling it so when somebody comes to you originally and they're, they're kind of suffering with, with with psoriasis talk me through what that sort of journey can look like let's take somebody that all they've done so far is they've maybe been to their gp they've had some steroid creams uh, maybe they've kind of had some light therapy uh, and they start thinking about a slightly different way. Can you talk me through a little bit about what that sort of functional approach to psoriasis looks like? Mm. So the way that I work, um, I'm a naturopathic nutritional therapist. So it's a holistic method of looking at the body as a whole. So I would go through in a consultation with somebody, just going through the whole timeline back to when they were born, looking particularly at the gut because there's this big gut psoriasis link, but also looking at things like hormones um, women in particular can get psoriasis flares either just before a period or during ovulation. Um, also, pregnancy can sometimes flare the skin, sometimes clear the skin. It's, it's never the same for everyone. Um, so we'd delve a bit more into hormones, nervous systems, a really big stress factor there as well. Um, and getting all those pieces of the puzzle together. So exercise, um, sleeping, making sure someone's sleeping well, hydrating, stress, and of course, getting the right kind of nutrients in so the nutrients to support the skin but also just making sure there's not too many inflammatory foods going in there as well 
And so when when you when you kind of start with somebody, is is there a way that you know do, do you start with some kind of testing? Can you get more data? Like how does that work? And again, let's take somebody back from they've been in their GP. There isn't mm. a traditional psoriasis test that yeah. you can kind of do. So talk mm-hmm. to me a little bit about about that. Mm. So I'd always generally ask the GP to do some blood tests. And the ones that the GP would generally do is things like vitamin D. So there's a link with vitamin D and psoriasis. Um, B9 and B12 to check for something called methylation in the body, which is quite important, which is linked to um, all of the cells and is the backbone really behind all of the functional pathways in the body. So Um, methylation, what you're saying there is actually your ability to actually absorb certain is that right Mm, well methylation is the i always think of it as the language that our cells use to speak to each other so it's behind all of the chemical pathways so it's um it makes dna in the body so it's literally making skin cells it's behind um, liver detoxification um, energy production production krebs cycle and it produces all of our neurotransmitters our serotonin melatonin dopamine um, it's linked with kind of anti-inflammatory um, processes in the body. So it's, it's really important to get it straight. And for methylation, we particularly need B9, B12, um, other nutrients such as magnesium, um, choline, potassium. Um, so uh, and to go back to your question about testing, sometimes I would test methylation, someone's genetics, to see how well they're methylating with people when they come in. Um, so, so, so is that something that, so that you can do the, the vitamin testing via the GP, mm. but, but methylation testing, can that be done with the GP? Like, no, that's a private genetic test. It's quite easy. Um, it's just a swab of, on the inside of the cheek and you send it off and you get the results. Um, and your genes never change. So it's a way that we know um, where the weaknesses in the pathways might be and what nutrients and what foods and what lifestyle changes we can use just to make just to support those weak spots so to make sure that we're methylating well but I think regardless of genes um, B9 and B12 are necessary in good amounts for anyone anyway so even if it's just the GP blood test we can see if they're low and that's an area that we'd focus on with foods um, genetically not everyone can extract B9 which is also called folate from foods so a genetic test might tell us that you're not absorbing B9 from foods very well in which case we might look at supplementation if if the person wants that. And if you're not, so let's take B9 as an, ex- as an example then. If mm. you're not absorbing B9 from your food, mm. I'm assuming just swallowing a supplement isn't going to solve it can, the problem. So depending on what the um, blood tests come back at, we'll have a look at the folate in the blood. If it's low, in that case, a supplement. And generally, I would use a liquid supplement or a powder because it's better absorbed um, just to increase your levels of folate so you've actually got something coming into this methylation cycle to start off with because it uses folate as the um the fuel really and so what but what are the different ways like is that are they like oral things that are there different ways to get those supplements into your body because mm. i know that you can get b12 injections or or like the okay, sublingual yeah. mm. like or, or can you, or is it just about more quantity and swallowing more of that? Yeah, so you might need to, depending on the levels, maybe supplement, and I prefer the liquid supplements, 
but also food first. So making sure, so folate, for example, is in um, green leafy vegetables, um, in organ meats, particularly if somebody's eating those. Um, but then we go a step further to look at digestion. So somebody also needs to have good digestive capabilities, as well as the genetic predisposition to be absorbing it from the foods. They also need to be digesting, breaking down those foods well to actually get the folate out of the foods in the first place. Yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting topic. I can't tell you how many sort of uh, experts I've kind of spoken to over the years irrelevant of their sort of area of speciality. But that kind of idea of to start with, regardless of what the, the disease or the, the symptom is, going back to the absolute basics mm. of are you actually digesting your food properly? Because that is like the base level of and there's and, and the simple things that you can kind of do to, you know, we often jump straight to supplementation or gut testing or things like this. But I've heard some of like the leading experts just being like, just chew your food mm. <laughs> properly. Yeah. Give yourself some space between meals. Don't have loads of fluids with your kind of yeah. dinner. And I, I sometimes actually find something quite reassuring about like, oh, you can just start with the basics and yeah. that might get you that might get you a long way. Yeah, definitely. And it goes back to that empowering thing again. So it's it's and I think with psoriasis, probably other conditions as well. It's almost about caring for yourself and nourishing yourself. So I think some people go into it with a very restrictive, um, almost like a battle. So I've got this horrible thing on my skin. I want to fight it. And it's a war against yourself. But I think when you try to look at it as um, using food to nourish yourself, to give yourself the vitamins you need, and that comes with eating in a relaxed state, in your parasympathetic mode, um, and just connecting with the food and eating it out of love, really. So to nourish yourself, because we need... Um, I think there's a lot of psoriasis diets out there and it's often about eliminating, taking foods away. But we actually, I think people forget that we need the nutrients for the liver to work well, for all of the different body systems, the fat-soluble vitamins, for the skin health. So it's, if you focus on putting the good food in, I think it's a much healthier way to look at it. But also, yeah, to extract those nutrients, we need to be digesting them. So as you say, I think it's um, about chewing to applesauce consistency, eating relaxed um not putting out the fire with water and that can go a really so long way let me just zoom in on then talk to me about apple sauce mm. consistency i've not <laughs> heard that before okay so i always think so rather than telling someone to chew 30 to 50 times per mouthful which is the standard which is not really fun for anyone is it you know you're going for a meal just counting um it's to almost have that food as liquid by the time you swallow it because when we're chewing, this is the only conscious part of digestion. I always think once you swallow, it's up to the body. It's autonomic for the body just to do the rest of it. So the more help we can give our body up here in the mouth in the first place, the better it is. So, um, yeah, the more we can break it down, the less the rest of the body has to do to break the food down even further. And also just to make sure that saliva's flowing. I think when I ask people this, lots of people think about it and actually that saliva isn't flowing in the first place so you want to get to the point before you eat where everything's switching on and um, if the saliva's flowing the stomach acid is flowing the digestive enzymes are flowing and the body is ready to receive the food and you're saying there and and so chew the food 
just explain so you're looking for what sort of consistency when you're chewing your food what mm. is that so before you swallow um apple sauce consistency so almost a liquid i'd say so don't try not to swallow kind of whole chunks of food because then you're literally just kind of leaving it up to the body like there you are sort that out and it's if there's already problems it's difficult for the body to do that so we've spoken then about kind of to start with really kind of getting a baseline on your body before any kind of hard treatment on psoriasis starts it's about thinking about right um can i go to my gp and get certain uh uh, checkups on my kind of vitamins Mm -hmm. perhaps if i've got uh if i'm financially able to to go and look into methylation to see how that is functioning because that can be quite important and that can kind of be addressed Mm -hmm. um what other kind of like exploratory things can you do or do you do with clients it gives you good data Mm, so um stool testing which is obviously the big one so the big kind of gut psoriasis link which has been shown in you know in previous studies so it's the imbalances in the gut um, and we, we touched on it before, the leaky gut, so intestinal permeability, but you quite often find things in the gut through stool testing, which are producing their own toxins inside your gut. So um, these things are called uh, lipopolysaccharides, so LPS for short, they're known as an endotoxin. So we have a group of bacteria called gram-negative bacteria in the gut, which produce LPS and endotoxins. And these toxins then cross over that leaky gut and get into the bloodstream. The bloodstream doesn't recognize them, launches an attack, kind of fires up the immune system, which can cause autoimmunity. But also those LPS then end up in the liver. So there's also a psoriasis liver link because the liver quite often gets overworked because it's now having to detoxify LPS endotoxins as well as um, what other things it's trying to detoxify just on a normal day-to-day basis and so when you see stool tests from you must see quite a few stool tests Mm. from clients with psoriasis you start to see these patterns do you Mm. emerge across people that do have psoriasis or Mm -hmm. some kind of autoimmune condition yeah so um no two tests are ever the same there's certain common themes that i find um low elastase so as we were talking about digestion elastase in a stool test is a marker of your digestive enzyme output and that's quite often low it's low in my case as well and it's low in quite a few stool test results that I see Um, and it goes back to the digestion if the um, digestive enzymes are low if that food isn't being broken down properly um, so food so digestion is saliva first and then stomach acids and then digestive enzymes and in the small intestine there's also bile that comes into the mix as well and that's the kind of the end of the digestion um so if the food isn't fully broken down by the time it gets to the large intestine it starts to um, affect the microbiome in the large intestine it's it ferments down there if it's not broken down particularly with psoriasis there there's a link of proteins fermenting in the gut and causing their own toxins, which adds to that toxic burden then. Um, so elastase, lower elastase is something that I see quite a lot on stool tests. And again, it's a sign to concentrate on that um, mindful eating that we were speaking about before. Um, when, what sort of correlation do you see between clients that have psoriasis and also have some kind of like digestive issue? Like what percentage mm. of clients would you say? Lots. I'd say 90 95 percent 
Um, and I would also say even I've even had people without any obvious gut issues doing stool tests and still will have loads of things show up on the stool test. So it doesn't always correlate that someone, I think someone who's getting bloating, irregular bowel movements and gas, like very obvious digestive issues, um, always something will come up on a stool test to work on. If someone doesn't have those issues, I'd say like 98% of the time we still get things coming up on stool tests. I've probably only had a couple of cases in all my years of having a stool test that's absolutely, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. So normally, but normally people do have some kind of digestive issues and they find the link as well. So they may find that their gut's playing up and their skin's getting worse. And it's quite an obvious link like that. So let's dive into a little bit then. So, so, so a, a stool test comes back and you spoke about there that sometimes there can be particular markers that can kind of signify things that are going on. Elastase is one that you talked about, how they're actually digesting their food. Um, leaky gut can be somewhat of a, um, a, a kind of contentious topic, I think particularly between the divide of Western and more naturopathic medicine but I think more and more evidence is now coming out to kind of support mm. the theories around this can you explain in a little bit more detail about what are the markers that might kind of give you some guides on whether leaky gut might be kind of going on mm. and what is actually happening in the client's body because of that mm. so I actually would just presume leaky gut with psoriasis and um, because that's the reason why it's there in the first place because we've got toxins that belong in the GI tract, which is like a, the GI tract is a hollow tube that runs down your body and food should just stay in that tube. And in the small intestine, it's got a very thin lining to allow nutrients to cross into the bloodstream. But because it's so thin, it's only one cell thick, that's where um, you can cause issues. And, and there should always be gaps in that lining because we need the nutrients to cross over, but they should open and shut and be quite flexible and be quite small. But it's when those gaps get too big and stay open for too long, that's when you get the leaky gut. Um, but I don't really look for um, a yes or a no answer of whether the leaky gut's there. I presume a leaky gut. So then a stool test for me is fi about finding out what's going on in the gut to what's causing, what's producing endotoxins that are crossing over that leaky gut. So it might be gram negative bacteria it might be um, yeast overgrowth, I see really commonly, um, maybe some parasites, but normally there's something in there that's, that's crossing over. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And, and what are the sort of lifestyle... I'm assuming this isn't just people are necessarily predisposed to having leaky gut. Are there certain mm. lifestyle factors that can kind of increase your chance of kind of having this? Mm, and um, a lot of people probably more often than not, we'll find that a stressful situation has been behind the first psoriasis flare. So stress is something that can cause that the leaky gut to appear, um, along with things um, like drugs, so either recreational or things like antibiotics, pharmaceuticals, 
um, alcohol, smoking, just poor diet and lifestyle generally, all things that can damage it. Um, but I think people Googling, it's, you know, there's lots of talk about, oh, you know, heal the gut, which is important, but we also need to first rebalance the guts, make sure that everything's in balance, that there's those bacteria that were causing the LPS and the endotoxins are not there anymore. Um, it's almost, I always think of the gut as being like a scab. So if you continue to poke it, it's not going to heal. So you need to first take away the things that are poking it to allow it to heal itself. So it's not as easy as just putting in something like L-glutamine that's often spoke about. Um, it's, it's not as simple as that. It's about first removing the barriers um, that are causing, causing it there that mean it can't heal in the first place. And, and, and those kind of supplements that go in, things like that you're talking about there, kind of um, L-glutamine, those are things that are hopefully going to help repair the kind of gut lining. Mm. That's the idea around it. Mm. You're also saying then focus on the bacteria that might, the gram negative bacteria that might also be causing mm. toxins to be in there as well. So a, a separate kind of approach to that. Mm. Are there, there's so much talk when you talk about atopic or, or, or psoriasis kind of uh, conditions. There's so much talk around, well, it's, it's, just, it's just the diet that you're eating. If you just strip out dairy and gluten, you're going to be absolutely fine. I'm really interested on your kind of take on that because mm. you see lots of things online where someone says um uh let's take an extreme example i ate red meat and nothing else for 90 days and my psoriasis kind of completely healed as a mm. practitioner what would your reaction to that be i'd love to see what's going on in the guts in that case um i think gluten gluten and dairy and sugar for example are inflammatory foods so by removing those, you're just calming the inflammation in the body generally, which can obviously go some way towards helping your skin. And people do. I healed my skin purely on a food basis the first time. So it's obviously possible. Um, but I think sometimes, so I think the reason that that works by taking away those foods as well is that you're not feeding the bacteria. So those overgrowths, you're kind of there um, not being active because they're not getting the foods that they need to thrive. So candida yeast, for example, needs sugar to thrive. So by taking out the sugar, you're not feeding the candida, but it's still there. It's still dormant. And lots of these bacteria and yeasts create a film around themselves, a biofilm to protect themselves because they're, they want to live. Their, you know, their main aim in their own lives is to um, continue living in your gut. Um, so by not eating the sugar, for example, you're decreasing the yeast down, but it's still lying there dormant. So you're not necessarily getting rid of it. So sometimes you need a little bit more to break the biofilm. And maybe then at that point, some antimicrobial herbs to actually kind of get rid of the yeast in the first place. Um, so actually this idea of these really, really restrictive diets and people get mm. a remission in symptoms. Mm what you're saying is that then as soon as they start to eat normal foods again, mm. there could be a chance that things are just going to creep back in. Yeah. So I'm not sure going back to your question about the, you know, the red meat diet for six months, um, are the microbes in our microbiome need diversity, need mainly vegetables, different vegetables, different colors to, to feed them. Um, and they're responsible not just for skin health, but for how we feel on the inside. So, um, feeling good on the inside so I'd love to know how somebody felt if they were just eating red meat for six months 
um, were they feeling optimal and full of life and were all their other symptoms good um, and long term I just feel like someone would need to feed the rest of that the different gut bacteria and perhaps by eating the red meat alone so you're not having gluten you're not having dairy or sugar um, some gram-negative bacteria feed on starches so Klebsiella for example um, thrives on starch so if you're not having any starches you're not feeding it so it's not producing the LPS and maybe that's why the skin is clearing but I think it's always about finding a way which is um which works for you that you can sustain for life so it's almost better not to think of it as a way of focusing on the skin and trying to clear your skin it's focusing on a way to make you feel good that's also not aggravating your skin and that you can just carry on kind of in the long term not strictly forever you know you allow people can have blips because you know we only get one life but it's generally eating to feel good Mm. and 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 clients that you've seen be successful and get and kind of get their symptoms into remission how restrictive have those diets been for them mm. can you give us an idea of 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 for somebody kind of wanting a more functional approach to psoriasis mm. what what are the, we can talk about hacks to make those diets easier but i am interested in you know what it d- does take mm. To, to, to do that mm. so I think generally it's just about eating a whole foods based way so and that generally kind of the gluten and the sugar particularly do just fade away if you're just having you know nothing from packets just having whole real foods and eating half your plate of vegetables three three times a day so including breakfast or um, if you're not going to have vegetables with breakfast, have fruits like berries, but maybe have a vegetable smoothie a bit later on in the day. But really flooding your body with vegetables for the different nutrients, for feeding the different gut bacteria. Trying to get a palm-sized piece of protein for each meal. So protein's really important. Protein's literally the building blocks for everything in the body, including skin. So hair, skin, nails, but also all our hormones, our neurotransmitters. So we need to get enough protein but we need to break it down properly so that goes back to the digestion again um and then carbs some people are more carb sensitive than others but generally about a a fist closed fist size of whole grain carbohydrates per meal as well or we could be more flexible with that depending on how people feel but it's not about um I prefer to think of it that way rather rather than strictly, you know, I'm not allowed gluten or dairy or sugar. It's about emphasising the goods so that you're full and satiated with the vegetables and the good, clean protein. And then generally you don't want the other things anyway. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think also having kind of been through it myself as well, it's a mixture of finding because it, it is so powerful, the the body's response to uh what i'm trying to say is um your microbiome can influence your cravings which Mm. is which is pretty well proven now and i've certainly experienced that myself like when i first went on a years ago when i tried to do a bit of a restrictive diet to start with it it was so incredibly difficult like the craving that i had for more carby foods or sugary Mm. foods and then within a few months, they just disappeared. Yeah. And that wasn't a, that wasn't a, like a, to me, it wasn't a cognitive thing. It wasn't like, oh, I've stopped thinking about them. I just, 
And it, so it felt like, and there's more studies now sort of supporting this, that actually, you know, your, the, the microbes react and change kind mm. of based on your diet. And so you'll crave, and that's quite a cruel thing in some ways, because people that have very high carb, high, very high sugar diets naturally will find it harder to migrate than somebody that doesn't because their mm. body is telling them, yes, get more of, and that's our mm. sort of ancestral survival thing mm. right how do you fill up and get as if it's rich and sugary and fatty mm. and carby that's good you're going to survive for for, for for longer yeah what do, how do you help clients early on make that kind of transition because that must be the mm. hardest bit yeah. to go from well, well just before we get on to that you're talking there about portions, right? So uh, it kind of splits your plate up into three equal sizes of vegetables, carb and protein, roughly, let's say. Mm-hmm. What do you think the traditional Western diet balance sort of looks like? Do you think it's much more carby? Oh, definitely. So the kind of the traditional um, government plate is very carby. Um, whereas I, yeah, half a plate of vegetables is the way that I prefer to look at it. And protein, so almost basing your meal on vegetables so instead of thinking what carbs, what protein am I going to have to eat next, it's about basing it, what vegetables am I going to have to eat and just making sure you're getting enough of those in. Um, and yeah, to, so I think there's two different types of people and I work with people, I guide people when I see them in clinic. So it's there's the people, this always used to be my mindset, who just want to throw everything at it, just like flip everything around, like all or nothing, just go for it which is absolutely fine, just kind of ride out the symptoms, you know, ride out the detox and do it that way. Or there's the people who want to very gradually, um, you know, start making healthy changes. So swap out the gluten for other things, work on that for a few weeks. And then, um, you know, can we put more vegetables in a smoothie? Can we add cauliflower and kale to a smoothie and doing it more gradually? I think I must say the more gradual approach is more sustainable. So it's more life changing, whereas the other way around, it's something happens and then you're off the wagon and then you um, kind of beat yourself up for it. There's that whole psychological thing as well. So um, I think the gradual changes are better, but there is um, and hopefully less of a kind of coming off the sugar, um, feeling bad thing if you do it more gradually. But certainly if someone's got a yeast overgrowth, those cravings, and I had yeast overgrowth myself, the cravings for sugar, particularly after a meal, is literally, you know, it's cr- like climbing up the walls, like um, desperate desperation for sugar, that the influence of the yeast over your body is scary, actually, that it's, it can force you, you know, the cravings to have that to feed itself. So that's really interesting then. So let's just zoom in on that for a second mm. then. So 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 talk me through that. A somebody that is experiencing a good example of this is you've had your main meal and shortly after having your meal just 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 talk me through mm. that. I'm so really interested. In I it. just used to always need something sweet after every meal um to the point of need it like you can't override it. Um and generally when you kind of when you're eating well, that can disappear in a few days. But it's um, it's the yeast's attempt at survival, really, to get you. It needs sugar to survive, so it's it's trying to force you to take sugar. And actually, I think doing the store testing, and if you find out there is a yeast overgrowth, it kind of takes the 
it makes you feel better because I think people can think, oh, I'm so weak-willed. What's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just I'm give up sugar? Pig. Yeah, like everyone else gives up sugar. What's wrong with me? And then when you look and you see it's actually not your fault, it's, there's something in your gut that's causing it. it. Just, I think it helps to um, to shift the blame a little bit. And I often think as well for, I, and I think this analogy sort of crosses into weight loss really, really well as also is this kind of idea of, you know, you've spoken there about the sort of very, very gentle approach and, and, and going into it kind of steadily and then the slightly more kind of extreme of, I'm just going to kind of hit this really hard. I'm going to get rid of all sugar, all alcohol, all kind of carbs. Mm. Um, uh, one thing that I found really, really helpful was what are the, what are the non-negotiables? Like, what are my absolute non-negotiables? And they'll, they'll be different for everyone, right? For some people, they'll be, um, they're cultural mm. for some people, you know? Uh, for some people, they're like ritualistic, like, on a Friday night, me and my partner always have a glass of wine together. Mm. It's like our thing, right? Um, and so for me, it was like, right, my non-negotiables, I had a sweet tooth. So, okay, how can I make something? How can I trick myself by making a brownie that doesn't have any sugar in it? Mm. And there's so many ways to kind of do this now. And, and I remember chatting to a friend kind of years ago saying like they'd, they'd always struggled to uh, lose weight they'd go on like a binge diet they they do everything then they go back and they eat a tub of ice cream and and i was just like why don't you just make ice cream and they're like what i was like well just make ice cream without sugar in it mm. there's a hundred million recipes on the kind of internet and just that, that instant kind of like oh like it's not that and you're talking about that idea of like removing punishment it's it's mm. reframing mm. isn't it but actually, if you put the groundwork into that of like, right, I'm going to make sugar-free brownies. I'm going to make sugar-free flapjacks. I'm going to make a smoothie. I'm going to hide kale in it, but it's going to mm. have cacao powder yeah. and a banana in it. So it's going to taste sweet. Mm. Um, I think can be really helpful for the people that would just find it too challenging mm. to just switch into this kind of um, monk mode yeah like. it's hard and it's um it's inevitable that those habits won't last like everyone's going to have a, a dip here and there and I think maybe that's part of the journey as well just learning to have your own back like it's going to happen particularly if someone's stressed and I think that's one of the first things I tend to work on with people actually to make sure that they're relaxed that they're relaxed in their parasympathetic mode almost something that anchors them every day, whether it's meditation or yoga or journaling or having Epsom salt baths, which helps. But it's hard to make those lifestyle changes when you're in fight or flight mode because fight or flight is an emergency. You're running for your life. It's not the time to start changing lifestyle habits. And even when you are in parasympathetic and you've, you start to make those lifestyle changes, when stress comes up, which it inevitably does, um, it's, you're not going to be able to stick to it a hundred percent first time so it's about just giving yourself that grace forgiving yourself and just slowly kind of having your own back and just getting back onto it when you can and I think that's I an think, important thing I think there's a I think sometimes with I certainly found this and I don't know whether this is a gender thing possibly this idea of when I sort of approached it originally I was like I just want data and science and numbers 
And I very much thought about any kind of functional medicine approach being made up of two pillars, and that was diet and it was supplementation. Mm. And actually, it's probably this podcast that has really started to change my mind on that, to think about things kind of more holistically. And it was because of data, but like mm. I was chatting to a, a neurologist recently called Dr. Maya Shatreet, and, and, and she was talking about um, uh, uh, when you kind of, break up the the healing of a client you can kind of break it up into a sort of cheese wedge where you've got yes you've got the diet yes you've got the kind of supplementation and addressing the kind of issues and the testing in there and she would say almost in equal measures then is the kind of lifestyle parasympathetic relaxation those kind of things but she actually then backed it up with and here is the data to show what like uh, so she was talking about um uh what do they call it forest bathing Mm. right four years ago if someone had said to me um and i was say i was struggling with psoriasis right and i turned up to a practitioner and they're like right i'm going to prescribe you one hour of forest bathing i would have i would have run i would have run out of that (laughs) clinic yeah right um but 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 actually, there is just so much evidence now to support. Okay, you don't need to be out hugging trees. But what like, uh, do you really enjoy playing chess? Is that a really mindful mm. exercise for? It doesn't matter what it is. Mm. Do you like cycling? Do you like taking the dog for a walk? Like how many how many hacky ways, simple ways, can you access that parasympathetic mm. nervous system? And I'm interested to know the impact that you've seen with your clients on, on that side yeah. of, of, of kind of treating psoriasis. So, yeah, as I said before, like the stress psoriasis link is massive. And sometimes someone can be doing everything right, but if they're still stressed, it's just not quite budging. And I think going back to the science, the some of the reason for that is that stress decreases your stomach acid. So, um, and that's when you get the gut issues. So you might be eating all the right foods, you know, the healthiest diet in the world, but if you're not, if you've got low or no stomach acid, you're not breaking down the food, you're not getting the nutrients out of the food, the food is going into the gut, not broken down, causing gut issues. So you're low in nutrients, you've got gut issues, um, you've got leaky gut anyway, and that's when it shows up as psoriasis. So that's the kind of the science reason behind um, stress and psoriasis. Also, cortisol is just inflammatory in the body. So it just adds to that inflammatory loads otherwise. So that's yeah, stress is a really big factor. And I think it's, as I say, about having the anchor, learning to have your own back and just, it's about having breaks. So we can get stuck in fight or flight and you can be in fight or flight for days, months, years upon end. So it's just having that little pockets of time where you're just having a break from it to live. Your body needs to feel safe to heal. You can't heal when you're in this emergency situation. So trying to just find these little pockets and I think it's, as you say, it's different for everyone. Sometimes if someone's been in fight or flight for a long time, to go from that to go to sitting in stillness in meditation, you know, for half an hour <laughs> a day is like too big a leap. So I think often it's like stepping down. So doing the things that you spoke about, chess, crafting, mindful colouring, singing, um, and gradually getting to that point where you can just be still and be with yourself. If a, um, if, a, if a client came to you, Emma, let's say, uh, with 
a pretty serious case of psoriasis, the correlating kind of digestive issues with it. And they were the, uh, the CEO of a hundred million pound company. And it was really evident to you that like just the stress of this job. Do you think that you, what, do you think it's possible for them to get themselves into a place of remission without making substantial changes to the, the stress of the, yeah. the, the, the job that they're... I don't know if that's a silly question. No, it's but... not. And I think it depends um, how much time they can give themselves to balance it out. So I think stress is always going to be there, whether you're you know, busy CEO of a busy company or not, or whether you're just a busy mother of three children. It's always going to be there, but it's how we manage it. And I personally always think it comes back to kind of mindfulness just watching your thoughts, giving yourself a little bit of space between your thoughts, like observing your thoughts from outside of your body almost, just giving yourself that space. Um, and just how much time can you afford to get into parasympathetic mode each day? And it has to be daily, non-negotiable. It has to be, you have to have that downtime each day. And maybe if they're really, really busy, but they're managing to get a solid hour or two of parasympathetic, that would be enough to balance it out. Um, it's, I think it's always about balance. And, and, and finally, because I've seen a, a, a kind of a lot of this, a lot of, uh, you talked about light therapy with mm. psoriasis kind of earlier on. People that respond to light therapy, um, I, I, I've, I've, you know, I've heard about quite a few people just moving to hot, sunny mm. countries and the kind of impact that that can kind of have on their symptoms. Have mm. you seen correlations of that with psoriasis? Is it mm-hmm. harder for a psoriasis uh, sufferer do you see you know people either in winter seasons seem to be suffering yeah. worse or if they live in a country that's very dark and cold mm. like is there any data to show that hot countries have less psoriasis than cold countries i mean i think i'm not 100 percent about this but i think india is one of the countries with the most prevalent psoriasis cases um australia as well you know you've obviously got their sunny hot countries but you're still getting the psoriasis there um so i think it helps i think when people go on a holiday so i think it's a combination of the downtime the sunshine ideally getting in the sea as well all of those um things kind of combine to help but i think just living in a hot country doesn't necessarily um clear psoriasis or stop it coming in the first place so i think it's part of the puzzle but i don't think it's the overriding um magic bullets and, and we've also spoken so much about what we put in our bodies, but what about like on mm. our bodies? Because I know that this is a big thing when it kind of comes to skin and it's actually something that most people aren't actually that conscious of. Can you talk mm. to me a bit about that? Yeah, so we can absorb um, anything that we're putting on our bodies topically gets absorbed into the body through the skin. So always kind of try and stick to the natural things. I was just using coconut oil when I was going through my own healing. Um, There's many different kind of natural creams and lotions and potions out there. Um, But the more natural, the better. Just try and stay away from those chemicals where possible. And are you talking about as far as like actually things to treat psoriasis, Mm. like skin, the things that you put on, or are you just talking about daily things that like, what about, you know, for people that suffer with psoriasis, what things should they be avoiding? Mm, You mean topically? Yeah. Um, So I think it's about, so obviously the work that we do is on the inside, but we can still just kind of help with the scaling, help with the itching, calm things down with the topicals. 
So it's about um, just kind of keeping that skin supple, really. So keeping it soft um, and trying to calm the flake down. So the flake tends to be if it's um, dry and kind of um, itchy. So trying to do all we can. Epsom salt baths are really helpful for that as well. Um, and also you're absorbing the magnesium through the skin then. So generally an Epsom salt bath before bedtime is quite nice. You get a deeper sleep like that as well. And you're absorbing the um, magnesium. And generally I suggest looking for the ones magnesium sulfate because um, the sulfate component helps with a process called sulfation in the body, um, which is important as well. Sunlight um, also helps with sulfation. So it's quite an interesting link there between um, sulfation and psoriasis. And away from actually treating the psoriasis, what are like three common things that I'm talking like consumables now, this probably mm. applies to kind of everyone that you don't use anymore. I'm interested, like, you know, are there, certain, are there, there things that you used to put on your skin that you just wouldn't put on your skin anymore? Um, I suppose just, you mean like creams and, and stuff like that? perfumes okay. deodorants like what yeah do you, or do you just use normal things no i just try to clean all of that up now so um a clean um chemical free kind of makeup cosmetic company just yeah clean even the perfumes i have a kind of essential oil based um because yeah we are those chemicals can get into the body and cause disruption that way as well so so let's just go through those things i think this will be really interesting for people mm. um makeup so you like we can talk about names you know okay. so can, because i think this will be really interesting for people okay. so what are the things in makeup that can be problematic and what is an alternative um so it's the it's generally the the chemical uh, chemicals in them so shall i name brands the ones that i use yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so i use yeah. um tropic which are all kind of vegan um very uh, handmade kind of clean friendly products um, for perfumes, I use a company called Eden Perfumes, which are, they mimic uh, well-known brands, but they use it out of essential oils. Um, topically, yeah, I don't really, I mean, just, I kind of mix it up, really. So sometimes I use Salcura, sometimes I use just a coconut oil. Um, what about deodorants? Deodorant, I... Because that's something, obviously, we put on every single yeah, day. Yeah, so I, I use a Walida. Um, I don't use antiperspirants. Um, there's a whole kind of, um, a whole thing there. When you first go off antiperspirants, you have a bit of a, your body has a bit of a detox period <laughs> off it. So you get quite smelly for a while because it's actually um, uh, the bacteria kind of dying off under your armpits. So, but if you can wean yourself off antiperspirants... Um, and I use a natural, just a deodorant now, so Willida um, deodorant. Um, because it, it makes you think when you, so you sweat more without using antiperspirants, but then it just makes you think, like, where was that sweat? It, that wants to come out naturally. So if you're blocking it with an antiperspirant, is it just staying in your body? Which doesn't quite seem right, so. Um, Emma, I've... I'm conscious on time, but it's been so interesting to talk to you. If people um, want to understand a little bit more about psoriasis, I know you work on kind of broader things than this, but it's what you're very well known for is kind of psoriasis. So you can follow uh, uh, Emma on Instagram. It's at Nutrition by Emma. Yes. Have I got that right? Yeah. 
Um, if you want to work with Emma, uh, you can head to www.nutritionbyemma.co.uk. Is there any other places or things that would be helpful to share with people? Uh, so I'm on Facebook as well, Nutrition by Emma. My email is emma at nutritionbyemma.co.uk. So yeah, get in touch. I'd love to help out. 